On this episode of Year One, we speak to Nate Shalev, founder of Revel Impact, a consultancy that specializes in social impact and diversity, equality, and inclusion to help businesses create a more inclusive culture for teams to thrive. Nate speaks about the importance of inclusivity, how to value your service, what early stage businesses need to do to set the foundation for inclusivity, knowing who you are and living a full life. Nate has an amazing story. Sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So, without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Nate, first of all, I'd like to welcome you to Year One. Thank you for giving up some of your time and joining Satish and I this afternoon. We're going to get into your business, but before we get into the business, we start with the same question to everyone, and that is why entrepreneurship? Why did you not follow the traditional route? What has happened in your life that has brought you to this point now where you've decided I need to do my own thing? Yeah, thank you for inviting me and having me here. So time zones are such a thing. It's uh, it's like not morning, afternoon, like what what is time? So I started my entrepreneurship after being in the social impact space for over a decade. And even within this space that should have been about justice and equity and like solving these major systemic issues that we have, the organizations themselves had such unhealthy cultures. So I'd be getting texts about deliverables at at 2 a.m. and all hours of the day and night. There'd be miscommunication and mismanagement of projects. And the blame wasn't on the things that needed to be fixed in the project management or the communication. The blame was often placed on, on the individual and personally. So it created these really, just really unhealthy cultures to be in. And so even within these spaces that should have been doing it right, it was still feeling so to work there. And and so I, I consistently was thinking that there had to be a, a better way. And then the the specific tipping point for me came when I was sitting in a meeting and I had somebody in leadership. I, we were talking about a project that was coming up or an event that was coming up. And I just got berated and like spoken down to in, in this way that really just felt terrible. And I was like, I don't want to be spoken to like this ever again. And I don't want anyone else to experience this ever again. Um, and so there's always that some of that good old fashioned misogyny and transphobia in there as well, along with these along with these larger cultural issues. And so that's really what sparked me to start my own business that I was like, I, I do not. It has to be a better way. And I want to help create that better way. I love that the catalyst uh, shows up in many different forms. Talk to us about the company name. Revel was the, the what was the naming process? It's such a personal thing because you, you, you're you going to see it on cards and communication. And so sure. what, how how did the name come about? Yeah, so Revel Impact, so it's as as a business, focus on creating workplaces where both businesses and people thrive, where we can embrace who we are and, and show up that way at work. And the name, it was a long naming process, so I'd like to say that it was a spark of inspiration, but really I wanted something that had the connotation that this work is joyful, that you can delight in it. It can feel really heavy because we're dealing with some of these larger challenges and struggles and, and issues that deeply impact us. But often that change happens in those small moments, the moments that are in conversation or the moments that we don't expect. And so I really wanted this feeling of being able to revel in those small moments, being able to find the joy, find the ways that the change can happen, both in these really big ways of policy change or something like that, but really in the one-on-one -on -one interaction and in, in the individual interaction is where a lot of that change happens. So that's what I what I wanted to convey with the name. And it was a lot of thesaurus searching 
trying to find like <laughs> what's like what's an alternative for delight? What's an alternative for this? What's an alternative for that? And then and then I, I land on Revel Impact that it just had a it had the right balance of things that felt like a nice reminder. For for timing, just to set our audience up, because a lot of the people we meet have a moment of I want to go ahead and start a business. And then there's this gap, you know, is there. And the longer the gap from I want to start a business to I'm going to take my first step, the, the less intense the idea becomes. And then they, they sort of go back to, to a known pattern. I'm going to look for a job. Maybe it's a better employer or whatever. In your case, from that boardroom moment to I'm going to take my first step, can you walk us and some of the listeners through what was those early days like? What were some of the early action items that said, I'm not backing down now. This is where I want to go. Yeah, it was really nice to have that catalyst moment, that, that really strong moment of like, I, I cannot be here anymore. And so that really helped propel me forward because I'd been thinking it, it had been an idea that had been percolating for a while that I never really acted on. And so this was really the having that strong push was was really helpful to getting started. The beginning looked like reaching out to my network to ask for advice. So some independent consultants that I knew, I reached out to my alumni network just to say, hey, I'm starting this thing. Does anyone have anyone that I can speak to about it? And through through those conversations, I got connected to this consultant's community called The Upside, and they help early stage consultants get started. And there was a specific program called the Accelerator Program that helps people get started in their business within, I think it was three months, let's say. So I did that program and then was able to launch through that, understood how to position myself, how to get some of the like logistic questions answered about forming an LLC, about all of those like. They're not small tasks, but there it's a lot. There's definitely a lot more of the logistic side of things, right? When you work at an organization, you get your email, you get your benefits, you get all of these things. And so on the entrepreneur side, it was figuring out how to create that. So getting the support and then being able to launch that program was really helpful for me. Having the support to lean on and also the kind of step-by-step -step guide about what to do and when. So Nate, tell us a little about Rebel Impact. What exactly do you, so you're talking about social impact, diversity, equality, inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. How do you go about bringing that about within organizations? Because from my perspective, a lot of companies might not realize that they have issues like that, or yeah. a lot of companies might actually feel that they are so entrenched in their culture that to try and bring change could be quite disruptive. So, so how do you actually approach businesses with this and bring them along that journey to understand that this is essential. Yeah, I find that there are often two lanes that businesses will approach me from. The first is, which is unfortunately the more common, something has happened in their organization. So they tried to roll it in an initiative. Let's say they asked everyone to put pronouns in their signatures and it didn't go well. And now there's pushback and now they're reaching out to me for help around how to, or something else happened. There was some conversation between colleagues that didn't go well, or just something, some, there was some sort of like transgression that happened and now we need to approach it. So that's, that's one avenue. And then the second avenue is a more proactive stance. So uh, it could be, we want to make sure our employees feel valued. We want to make sure that we, like our retention rates are higher. We want to make sure that we are serving all of our employees equally want to make sure that we're paying everyone fairly. Whatever the thing is, there's some sort of proactive thing. So typically it's from one of those two things. Something happened or they want to make sure something doesn't happen on, on both of those ends. And so based on those, based on whatever path we're at, then we can talk about what 
what makes sense. But typically, typically that's that's how it happens. So they they already know that they want to do something with inclusion within their companies, and then it's figuring out what what is working and, and how it's working. I very rarely work with companies that I'm convincing. Most of the time, they know that it's important. They know that this is something they need to do, and they and they want more support in how to do it. So as a as a I guess two decade business owner, and and I'm not that old. So a lot of my younger, a lot of my younger businesses were just timing. And I, at one point I had a digital agency with, with over 65 people and, and I've always paid attention to gender from a ratio perspective. Do we have equal number of people for all of the positions and being a creative agency to make sure we had diversity in opinion and diversity in solution and thinking. And over the last two to three years, I would love to get your opinion. Gen- the topic of gender, the topic of pronouns has become a lot more in, in conversations. Maybe it was always there, but COVID sort of brought it to the forefront. For somebody who's starting a business now or somebody who's getting into a position of leadership, how does gender and pronouns now become part of the sort of work ecosystem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. So even when you were talking about a ratio, let's say typically people are only looking at men and women. So if you were thinking about the ratio, I wouldn't even be counted in that. Let's say I was at your organization, identify as not binary, right? Like I wouldn't even be, you wouldn't even know that it was there. Or I would feel so uncomfortable having to fill out this survey that was asking me to choose one of two options that neither fit for me, that that it would have been a signal to me that I don't belong here and I should start to look for my next gig because this is not going to be the place that I can be for long, for long term. So I would say that pronouns and and our conversations around gender are reflecting people's experiences already, right? No matter what in your organization, you are already going to have gender diversity. There's some statistic that says close to 50% of trans people live as stealth, which means you won't know that you've met a trans person, right? So you're going to meet somebody and you're going to perceive them as their gender, right? Because that's the gender that they are, but they have a trans experience. And so you won't actually know that. And so you already have the gender diversity. So I would operate from the assumption you've got trans folks in your organization. You've got folks existing across the gender spectrum. And so our conversation about pronouns is really a way to make sure that everyone can feel respected, that everyone can feel valued, that we're calling people the way that they want to be called. If someone introduced themselves as Bill, their name was William, you're not going to say, you look like a William to me. I'm going to keep calling you William, even though you just told me Bill was much more comfortable for you and, and you feel like a Bill. It's really just a way to make sure that everyone can feel like they have a space there and that they're going to be spoken to that the way that they want to be spoken to. Yeah. And the challenge with humans is anything good that happens is always a side of things that are not so good. A portion of us take these kind of things and make it uncomfortable and make it awkward. And so there's a ton of stuff on TikTok and a few other things that are, that are seeing this. When you look at a young person who's getting into the workforce, who is a lot more awoke from a gender identity perspective and more fluid in their conversations. From a workforce perspective, as as entrepreneurs, what is missing in the entrepreneur education spectrum that companies like you can help sort of create curriculum around? Because I see the same stuff with budget and people management and, and market fit and the same stuff being repeated, whether you're an MBA student or an accelerator. Where does did real change need to happen in how we approach building businesses now? Yeah, I think I think we I think it has to be the understanding that this is important to everyone, 
no matter what business you're in, no matter what area of expertise you have, no matter what your focus is, you need to be thinking about inclusion. It's not as a like a nice thing to do. It's actually necessary and integral to your business. So even if you are in marketing, right? Knowing what language to use and, and, and how to use it. If you are, again, building a business, right? And, and you're going to have staff at some point, you're going to need to know how to make sure everyone can feel good because that's how you're going to get the best talent. That's how your talent's going to stay there. That's how folks are going to feel productive and innovated. And it's because that they can feel like aren't, are thriving because they are rec- being recognized and valued for who they are and, and all of the differences and, and things that, that we bring. So I think that that's really the main thing is that everyone needs to know that this is something they need to be thinking about. If you're an engineer, thinking about bias and algorithms, right? Knowing, just knowing that there are so many different entry points to the work, but that this work is going to impact the success of the business, no matter what, at some point, maybe not at the beginning, maybe it's going to be five years down the road, maybe it's going to be six months down the road, but regardless, it's you're going to have to think about it. Nate, based on your experience now and working in this space, right, where are companies sitting at the moment? Do we have a very receptive marketplace for this type of inclusivity, quality, et cetera, or is there still a bit of a resistance within most businesses to, and maybe that resistance is not because They don't want to change. They don't know how to approach them. They don't know what the next best thing is for them. What are you actually seeing out there? Yeah. So I I don't have the full like words I view with the marketplaces, but I can say from the experience that I've been having there, there is a resistance to making longstanding systemic changes. Meaning a lot of times companies are saying, I understand this from like the interpersonal level. I want to do a change that I want to bring in somebody to do a training on how we can speak to one another better about how we can identify our biases in conversation and and improve that. And that kind of not surface level, but that's where companies feel very, very comfortable living. And then when you start to talk about larger changes in policy that need to happen or larger changes that will require more of a budget, more of a commitment, then it gets out and there's resistance there. So there's vocal resistance. I would say very few companies are going to say we don't want to do this, but in their actions, you can see, you know, if they have one DEI person, like one person dedicated to this kind of culture work and that person doesn't have a budget, doesn't have a staff, the goals aren't actually embedded into anyone else. So they're only solely going to be held accountable for it which means that they're going to be scapegoated when it doesn't work out or there's going to be like a, a more performative thing that we we want this to happen, but then the leadership and the CEO and the C-suite isn't actually behind it in their actions and in their words. And so it's not actually going to be successful in, in the long run. So that's more what I'm seeing, that folks are on board, but often on board in a very like siloed way. Mm-hmm. And as a founder, Nate, when you're thinking through how do you now offer your services? That's something that, especially folks that are getting into consulting, you're trying to figure out where does the value, how do I price this thing? You know, what is my time worth versus if I'm selling a pen, I have an e-com business and I can automate all of that. Because I went down the route of maybe I want to be a consultant at some point. And then I just, I just couldn't figure out how to trade my time. And then how do you market yourself as a consultant in a, in a sea of consultants? So take us to when you're thinking about your product and services and I was on your site. You, you're a speaker, you're an influencer, you work with brands. I downloaded the language PDF uh, to, to look through. It was fascinating because cool. there's so much stuff that uh, in other parts of my life, I'm trying to figure out how to, to talk and learn the narrative. And, and I love the fact that you're, you had a beautiful, simple to follow. I like pictures and arrows, so it was bang on. <laughs> so what I needed. But when you were thinking about the business and the service that it offers and how to put a price on it, 
Can you share some of the process you went through to figure out what that is like? Yeah, and it's it, so it's been a process for sure. So when I first started through that through that accelerator, one of the suggestions was to have your your current full time job be your first client, and so that's how I started. And so I, I started really with inclusion initiatives, so helping organizations grow, build, and grow their own initiatives, and then. Through this consultant network, I started to do some more speaking, more advising, and, and more engagements along those lines. So now that's primarily what my business comprises us is speaking and advising primarily. And so some of that was through the encouragement of this community. And a lot of that was also on LinkedIn. So I think that's, you found me through LinkedIn. I started posting on LinkedIn and it really resonated with folks. And seeing how much it resonated made me realize that there was a real space and a need for conversation and to be able to talk about this more. And so that's how I started to do more of the thought leadership programming and, and offerings. And so that's where that's that's where I'm, I currently I currently exist now within that space. And so thinking about valuing how to value those things when I'm coming in, let's say I'm only going to do an hour advising, right? You're not paying me for that hour. What the value is in the over a decade of experience that I have, the value is in me speaking to hundreds of people and knowing and knowing how to get my message across and what's going to resonate and what's going to impact change. It's knowing that I can come in and diagnose the problems that folks have around inclusion work because they have the experience too. And so I think some industries, an hourly rate might make sense and that's how you're going to value your work. I know for my industry, that's not that's not what makes sense because you're really valuing based on the experience that you have, the way that you work and the impact that you can make. Right. And the other consultant on the call, Dion, how does that resonate? Because you're also consulting and you're and looking at how do you add value? How do you time yourself? And I think a lot of the, the, the folks that I meet in this space, their biggest struggle is, is how do I charge for what I'm skilled at when what I'm skilled at took me 10 years, 15 years to, to get there, especially since COVID. There's so many people that are changing careers, 20, 30 years of working for somebody and now going on their own. And how do you put a price on it? What, what do you, how do you look at it, Dion? I'm just curious. There's a few things there, Satish. So. First of all, if I look at the value, there's not only a monetary value to it. It's what value am I getting out of that experience as well? And sometimes that is equally important, if I'm being very honest with you, because you want to be involved in an environment where you can affect change and you know that people are receptive to that. And that makes you feel good. And you walk away and you go, that's actually, that's kudos. That's, that's really, it's good for the soul. But also in terms of putting the price, looking comparatively in the market, see what's out there, but also looking at where I ultimately want to be. Do I want a lifestyle business? Do I want to actually grow this into a big consultancy and things like that? And taking all of those factors, for me, as I said at the beginning, you know, I'm a wannabe founder that would love to have a, a big, massive business. But I think the reality is I'm probably always going to have a lifestyle consultancy because that works quite well for me. So it's what, what from a monetary perspective, what do I want to be comfortable? And, and taking all of those and putting it together and saying, well, based on that, that's what I'm willing to go to market to. I appreciate yeah. you guys sharing. And you didn't think you were going to be questioned today, were you? No, I didn't think I was going to be questioned <laughs> today. But while we were talking, I had another question for you, Nate. So mm -hmm. this podcast is geared towards early stage founders, people that are out there that are either thinking about starting the business or already in it, but at the early stages, what advice would you give an early stage business to set the foundation and the structure in place to support diversity? What, what are those three things that just on the top of your head that you can think of? 
Yeah. So I'm, I am going to answer that, but I also want to just something that you said before about ch- like being able to value, like having some value for yourself as well when you go into these things. I also just want to emphasize that as much as possible, not having that scarcity mentality. So not saying yes to things that you don't actually want to do. So being able to like part, one of the be- like beautiful things about owning your own business is that you get to say yes to only the things you want to do. And if you say yes to something you don't want to do, you're going to spend so much time doing the thing you don't want to do that you're never actually going to get to to that to the place that you want to be and so it's just really encouraging folks to know that it's okay to say no to things even if you need the client even if you know that it's like it feels like the right opportunity being able to have more of that abundance mindset and say that if i'm i'm going to set the foundation to do the things that the right opportunities are going to come come along to me and then it'll set you i think for success in the long run I can't, I cannot agree with you more. I mean, I was just saying to Satish this week, I fired a client and I fired a client just because it didn't, it didn't feel right to me that there was a, a disconnect with what I was getting out of that relationship with versus what I was putting into the relationship. And I looked at that and I thought, you know what, I don't need to do this because I know that the ease, the actually, if you've got a, a mindset of abundance, opportunities are going to come your way. It's when you've got a mindset based on scarcity that you think I have to hang on to this client at right. all costs. And you're doing yourself a disservice, but you're also doing that relationship a disservice. So I, I agree. I think that's brilliant advice. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So thinking about the, the foundations for diversity, I think the first step is understanding yourself. So first knowing who you are, what identities you hold, how that impacts who who you are, right? So knowing that we all have different identities that will bring us different levels of access and privilege and power and, and, and all of that and being able to understand exactly what those are. If you have some identities, when I talk a lot about gender, sexuality and, and identities that tend to be more fluid, being okay with that, right? Knowing that it's okay to explore that identities don't have to be fixed. Labels are always imperfect. So you can find a label that works for you now and tomorrow it might be a different label, but we're Listen to the podcast, read the memoirs, know how others figured out what identities work for them and how they've understood their own identities. So you can be really clear about who you are first. And once you're clear about who you are, you can understand um, where you need to grow, where you need to learn, you know, who you need to surround yourself with, what what books you need to read, right? Where do you need to get the information to understand what experiences folks are, folks are having so you're able to be the one, a better person, but, but just so you can understand like where, where, where you fit into all of that. So I would say the first step is, is understanding who you are. And, and the second thing is, and I mentioned it before, but assuming that, fo- assuming that, uh, you're always going to have a disabled person in the room, have a trans person in the room, right? Actually actively doing things to make sure folks are going to feel valued in your organization, in your work and being really proactive about it. So that can look like I talk about events management sometimes. So I'm autistic. And so when I talk about that, that means assume you're going to have other autistic people in the room and be mindful of the sensory components of the room. Is the lighting too bright? Are you going to have smells coming in from the kitchen in terms of other uh, other forms of neurodiversion? Do you have a clear agenda? Does everyone know the expectations for socializing? Assume that these things are going to happen. So you can proactively account for it already and then everyone can feel welcome. Asking, asking folks for their accommodations and things like that are, are great, but actually proactively providing it is, is even better and removing the barriers that folks will have to enter your space. As you're talking, I'm just thinking back on my own days as a CEO and, and today's company is very different. We're almost 30 people, but 95% of us are remote. So mm-hmm. it's, a very, it's a very different digital culture. Slack culture, Zoom culture versus 30 people coming to work every single day and being around humans and sort of the 
the behaviors that we need to sort of do. And as you're talking, I realized so much of what you just said, I didn't even know I needed to think about those things. There's this conscious ignorance. I don't want to do it. I don't respect others. And this is the way things get done. And then there's the, I didn't even know I need to think about these things now, walking into a room full of people. And, and that was a comment. The question that I have for you is having sort of read an article about you and sort of did some background. There's this inner confidence in the things you know through the life you've lived. And the starting point of like, know who you are is such a big lifelong process. Mm-hmm. And, and I would love for you to, to share a little bit about your personal life and, and your discovery about who you are, which in this business that you're running, complete for me is a line. Like a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, want to do what they're passionate about and what they represent. And that's what you're doing through your business. And so maybe for folks that haven't had a chance to don't Google you yet, take us back a few years to, to your life's journey a little bit and your answer to that question of who am I? Because I love this quiet confidence that comes across in our call. And people, I think, should understand where it's coming from. Yeah, it's really funny whenever... Like people acknowledge or, or, or say that there's a confidence. It's actually, I created a, a keynote and, and workshop around this called Being Brave When You Don't Want to Be for exactly this reason, because I don't consider myself a brave person. I'm not the one like going skydiving. I never really wanted to like run into the burning buildings. I'm not the, like, that's not me. I'm not a brave, I'm not a brave person. It's just like not who I am. I'm, I'm always going to prefer like reading quietly in the park to, to really anything else. So, but, but what I've come to understand is that sometimes it get, like there's, there's a courage that it takes to live, right? And being brave simply means being who I am and talking about it and, and not knowing what the impact of that's going to be, not knowing what the reaction to that's going to be, but, but doing it anyway. And uh, that happened because I didn't really have another choice, right? It was either do this or do nothing. So it was as I was understanding who I was, which means I started to use they, them pronouns after I went to this queer summer camp, which was really fun. It was like this whole summer camp for adults. It was it was great, but it was the first time that I met somebody who used they, them pronouns. And it was somebody there that I admired. They described their gender in ways that resonated with, but I'd never actually met somebody who used they, them pronouns before. And so after that camp and I got home, I was like, you know, I'm going to try this out. And I tried it out with a close circle of friends. And it stuck and it felt more like me. When somebody used they them pronouns for me, I felt more like more like the me that I wanted to be. I just felt better about it. I felt like, oh, they are actually speaking to me. This feels right. It felt right to be interacting in that way. And that's kind of how things have happened. That I something didn't feel right. And so I would try something on and explore it and put a lot of trial and error. Or I'd listen to a podcast or read a memoir and be like, hey, this resonates with me. Maybe this actually, maybe this identity, maybe this life experience, whatever it is, is going to be something that that happens for me. And the alternative to that is living a half-life, right? It's living a quarter life. It's not really much of living at all. I could have gone to work every day. I could have had some job or done things that didn't, didn't make me feel alive. And so to me, there really wasn't another option. As a trans person trying to make it in trans, being trans and autistic and trying to make it in, in organizations the way they were set up was nearly impossible. 
So from the recruiting process, feeling like there was bias around when somebody was like, hey, I didn't think you sound like a Nate. Like, what, what, like, are you sure I'm speaking to a Nate? And even from the very beginning of that recruiting process, feeling like I was already wrong to begin with and that I didn't have a place at this organization. So each of those moments of being like, this doesn't feel right. I need to go do something else or this does feel right. I'm going to lean into this more has led me here. And each of those steps has has allowed, I would say, this, this confidence that folks might see. But it's really because I know that the alternative, there really isn't much of an alternative. The, the alternative is that I'm not really going to be living much of a life at all. And so knowing that this is how I'm going to keep on showing up, yeah. right? And and knowing that as I show up in this way fully as who I am, even when I don't really know what that is or what that means, but knowing that it this is what feels right for me. I'm not the loudest person in the room, but I'm always going to be quietly listening and then speaking. That feels right for me. So keep on keeping to understand exactly what that means and, and being okay with it. Mm-hmm. I don't really have a choice. I, when you said um, you don't want to live a half life, it really resonated with me. You know, I spent most of my teenage years feeling like I didn't, fit into this family structure. They expected a certain type of son and and I wasn't it. And there was no alternative. It was, you weren't what we wanted. So it's zero. And I was like, wait, but why can't I fit in a different box? And and I made a choice when I got to Canada. I said, okay, new country, new friends, new everything. I'm not going to bring forward that past with me. And as hard as it is, I'm going to go figure out what I'm feeling and why I'm different and how do I find the right people around me? And, and when I read an article about you, you talked about your, your Italian and Jewish parents and, and some of the support and especially your mom. I love the fact that not only did she support you, but she got into the entire movement and supported how much of the way they reacted built your confidence with you. Yeah, okay, we're going to talk about my mother. You didn't tell me we're going to talk about my mother. If we're going to talk about my mother, I got to bring Staten Island in and now Staten Island's in the conversation. And it took me a very long time to get rid of that accent. Yes, so I I came out when I was 17 in Staten Island, which of, of the New York City neighborhood, Staten Island is a very conservative part of New York. It's That's that's really it, right? So being out and queer on Staten Island is, there's not much for it. Being a, a teen, like a teen being out on Staten Island, there wasn't a lot of space for me there. And so when I came out, my parents were very like liberal in their politics. And so I didn't think it was going to be a big thing. And then it turned out to be a huge thing with a lot of really painful conversations through, through the years, right? Over 10 years or so, we had so many conversations about where their reactions came from. We talked about how their how their upbringing, how the values that they were taught, how that contributed to how they were thinking about me in ways that they didn't know. And so we really shipped away at all of those things. And, and it was a, a process of relearning and relearning how to be together and, and emphasizing that like, I am, uh, I am who I am. I have the values that I've always had. I have the passions that I've always had. My, my, my gender identity is it might be shifting now or might be something that you didn't understand. But ultimately, what it comes down to was them seeing that that this is how I'm comfortable in the world and that I, I am a child. I'm a, I'm a different child that, that, than they expected, but I am a child who's leading a successful life and, and they wanted to support that wholly. And especially my, my mom really being able to do a lot of work. Like I sent her books and she read books and she spoke to folks and like really 
had this very deep learning about about how she was reacting, why and, and what she can do now. And so that's really what sparked her from from talking to other parents. She'll, she'll, she'll occasionally just tell me like who, who she's like, who what what parent of what trans kid she is now speaking to to help them along their journey so they don't have to go through the same kind of painful process that we went through. Well, I appreciate you sharing. And for context, when I became more in love with myself, my business made more sense to me. And I think the reason why I, I went down this path, and if anybody's listening to it, whatever the gender or pronouns, it's it's having that 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 vision into who I am that you said is really important because entrepreneurship is hard. You're battling so many different things. You don't have control of the world, the economics, competition, perception. And to get into that fight at the minimum, having a vision of who you are, that you don't question getting into that battle is really important. And, and I wish I had learned that much earlier in life and, and to stop and focus on me a lot more than, than I did it. And so I, I think, you know, where you are and sort of when I, when I talked about the quiet confidence, it's that part that accelerators don't focus on, incubators don't focus on, MBA programs don't focus on. The person in the business is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. so, anyhow, so, yeah. sorry, no, no, sorry, Dion. <laughs> yeah, M most of the time when folks are looking, like when uh, they're hiring me or they're inviting me to speak to their teams, it's because of who I am. It's because they've built a relationship and they want to hire me personally. They don't, most of the time, they don't actually know of the case studies with the work that I've done. They don't even want to see that. They have trusted me because they understand who I am as a person. And that's what resonated. And that's what they want. That, that's what they want. That's the impact that they want. And so I, I absolutely agree. And I would say no matter who anyone is, no matter what identities that you hold, everyone has what makes them who they are, whether it's you are an artist they you throw pottery on the weekends or you paint or you're a, a marathoner and you're and you go jogging or if it's identities like your race and your ethnicity and your gender and your religion and and those identities that some of the identities that we're born with and some of them some of them that that we come to later they're all a part of who we are and by leaning into that people trust us more because they're able to connect with actually who we are not a version that we're trying to project that doesn't make sense it's just something, yeah, I was listening to this and I was just thinking to myself, I think it's brilliant that you're going out there educating businesses. And I think that you've been a spokesperson for this is amazing. But then you also touched on your mom and the support that you got. And I think that is equally important. I think there needs to be an education to parents as well, that you have to be supportive because your life could have turned out quite differently if you didn't have that support from your family. I mean, my own life, my son is gay, right? And he knew it from the age of seven. He just knew it. And, and I remember, being completely honest with you, you know, I was brought up in a very traditional home and I battled seeing my son playing with dolls and things like mm -hmm. that. So now you play the car, don't play with the doll. And I could see how he started becoming more of an introvert. And within a very short period of time, I realized that my behavior has a direct impact on his level of confidence. And I completely mm -hmm. changed that. And. I've completely accepted it. I think the fact that he is gay makes no difference to him as a person and what he's capable of achieving. And by us embracing it and giving him that freedom to talk about it and to explore and things like that, today he's one of the most confident kids you could actually get there. And that's why I think it's really, really important that it's not only businesses. It needs to come back into the home as well mm -hmm. where people need to take this and say, you know what, my child. They are who they are as individuals and we need to allow them to express themselves and 
be who they are. Because if we allow that, we just open, we spread their wings for them and they become amazing individuals. So sorry, that, that was just, just something that I wanted to share there. Yeah. But you guys are giving me goosebumps. You guys are giving me goosebumps. <laughs> but but, but then, also I wanted to ask yeah. you a question, Nate. So you said you had to do this. You had no choice. Otherwise you mm -hmm. weren't living a full life. Mm -hmm. Are you living a full life now? Yeah. It's like just thinking about what you just said. The, it's okay to have biases. So just for anyone listening, like it's okay to have those biases and to have that moment to say you should be playing with a truck and not a doll. It, we all have our biases. We, we, we're receiving these messages about what, what toys boys should play with, right? So we all have that in us. It's okay to have that feeling. It's not okay to stay in that place. It's not okay to stay in our biases and continue with our biases, but it is okay to acknowledge them and say, okay, how do I undo this? I know that this is a bias. I know that this is what's happening. Now what steps do I have to take to unlearn that? So it's not going to affect my son or my child or my coworker or whomever, I'm not going to continue to perpetuate this. So just to emphasize that. And I appreciate you saying natural. that. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you saying it because I felt, you know, yeah. when I sat back and thought, geez, what an asshole I was that I couldn't accept him for who he was right at the beginning. So I appreciate yeah. you actually saying that. Yeah, for sure. Am I living a full life now? I think I am living, I am living a life that is full, right? So there's that phrase that you can't pour from an empty cup. And so before this, I didn't even know the cup existed. I don't know that there was a cup at all. And now I know that there's a cup. And now I know, I know, I know what a full cup looks like. And I didn't know that before. And so I would say, depending on the day, right, we're all living, you know, different, different, different modes of life. But I, I at least know now that I deserve to have a cup. I deserve to have that cup be full. And I know what it means for it to be empty. I love that. I love that. That is such a great example. Let's talk about your business, you know, getting into 2023. What are some of the things that you're hoping to achieve? What are, what are some of the things that you're looking to expand into? Talk to us a little bit about what 2023 looks like. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping that it looks like more impact, right? So having, speaking on bigger stages, I'm working on a, a book proposal now. So being able to make more, more of an impact, both on the scale and just more folks, but also on the individual level, like do one-on-one -on -one coaching, being able to like help. Oh, I also started doing these inclusion roundtables, which has been really fun, just bringing folks together to be able to talk about anything happening in their workplaces and, and um, being able to brainstorm and have those resources and being able to help folks work, work through those problems. So that's what it looks like, being able to make that impact on the, on the scale level, but also on, on the individual level as well. Nate, I'm actually going to bring this conversation to an end, reluctantly. I don't want to. <laughs> we told you at the beginning, we're going to take 20 minutes of your yeah. time. We're now 40 odd minutes into this conversation. <laughs> and we could probably carry on for another 40 minutes, but I still have more questions. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I want to do is I do want to close it out. And I'm going to ask you three questions now, if you don't mind. So mm -hmm. looking at it from your business context, right? As a startup, what tools or software are you using that you've found has actually been indispensable to your business? Yeah. So like specifically Calendly is one. So any sort of calendaring software, so a scheduling link. And then on that scheduling link, I'm able to have the, like just the different levels, right? So it's just like a free discovery call link. It's, and then it's also some of the um, paid advisory sessions or, or kind of other things. And it can have that all in one place. So that's been really helpful to have that one place where folks can, can schedule and pay all in one. And then also just schedule. I've been using HubSpot, which has been great. I didn't know that there was a free 
like version of a CRM that's really great. So that was a game changer, being able to have that CRM, use CRMs at other organizations and being able to utilize one myself has also been a game changer. Those are the two, oh, Canva. Canva is really great. Being able to just create designs, both for my like proposals is really nice. So it can have really nice like proposals. The, my logo, really LinkedIn header, right? I, I, I use Canva for, oh, I, even that inclusion guide that you mentioned, that language guide was created on Canva. Was really so it's good. been, it's been really, really nice to be able to have that kind of easy to use software. And my second question to you is, I know that you said people are buying you. And I think that's a bit of my challenge as well. People on my time, right? Mm -hmm. But if you had to do the next hire that will propel your business into a stratosphere or into another direction or give you what you need, what hire mm -hmm. would that be and why? Yeah, this isn't going to be, I don't think, a unique answer. I'm terrible at the, like, the logistics end of the business. So probably hiring like a virtual assistant or, or some, something, somebody to help me with the invoicing and the scheduling and that kind of initial outreach that like that side of the business, I, I can do it. I do not love to do it. So if that, if I was able to free up some of those tasks to be able to focus more on the, the content, I think that that's what, what it would be. Lovely. And then my last question is, what's that one lesson that, entrepreneurship or your journey has taught you that you feel that everyone needs to learn at some point in their life? I think it's learning that I had something to say. I think that I, I obviously always had ideas and all of that, but I think that there was this feeling, who's going to listen? Why me? Why am I doing this? Who am I to start a business? I, I don't have an MBA. I don't have anything. I don't have a business. Like I, I, when I started, I didn't have a business plan. I didn't even know I should have had a business plan. I just knew that I couldn't stay where I was and that I needed to do something else. So that's what I would say is that knowing that you've got something to say, knowing that people are going to listen to it, you by virtue of being you in all of all of the things that you have, all the strengths that you have, all the struggles that you've been through, all the unique experiences that you have is what will make you a good business owner, a good entrepreneur is the reason why we need your business, whatever, whatever it is. I really appreciate that. And then Nate, if people wanted to connect with you or they wanted to follow you, where's the best channel to get hold of you? Yeah. LinkedIn is the place where I share the most frequent updates, um, but I have a newsletter that you can sign up at, at my website, rebelimpact.com. So I would say LinkedIn, the newsletter, or just my website. Thank you very much. And on that note, I would like to thank you for your time. Really sorry we've overrun, but it's been brilliant talking to you. I think that the lessons that you've shared with our audience today is life lessons that people can take away with them. So thank you. And, and we're going to be, con we can constantly follow you. Hopefully <laughs> we get to talk in the future again. Yeah. Thank you, you Nate, so for being, really fun. thank you for being so transparent and sharing. It means a lot to us. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Safish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by BloomX. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bloomx.io to join us on Discord.